Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 14. It's page 56 in your pew Bible. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his, all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants had changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the, all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and, and, and overtook them and camped by the sea, at the sea, by Pi Pahireth in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt, and you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of the Lord, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud in the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back 
upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus said the Lord, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Merrick. Thank God for the, the reading and the hearing, and now the preaching of his precious word. Um, we, we've been looking at the story of Exodus now for, um, I guess, a number of months. And uh, I've been calling this, and Rob alluded to this earlier, the second greatest rescue story of all time. And we love stories about freedom, stories about deliverance, don't we? There's something deep within the, the human soul that just longs for freedom. We want to be free. And it's not just, that's not just an American thing, although we've, uh, we've made the best of it. No, it's, it's everybody. Everyone, everywhere, all the time has a, a deep desire to be delivered from the chains that oppress them and to be truly free. For example, it was exciting at least initially, to hear news of the Arab Spring. I'm going back now, I don't know, to 2011, I think. And uh, if you recall, this was a prolonged period of uprisings and rebellions among people, the peoples of North Africa and the Middle East, people who were fed up uh, from being under the thumb of these oppressive dictators. And chief among these was a man by the name of Hosni Mubarak, he was the president of Egypt, um, and he had reigned for 30 years. That was a 30-year a reign that was increasingly corrupt. And it got to the point, and, and as if to prove the point of the corruption, Mubarak ordered the killing of protesters, people that would dare oppose him. And perhaps you'll remember the moment when the world cheered when the Egyptian people rose up and ousted him, and they inspired many other countries to do the same with their dictators. And the whole world was watching, and the whole world was entering in to the joy of newfound freedom. It's exciting, right? Everyone loves the sound of freedom. But what about the aftermath? I, I confess that I don't know a lot about the aftermath of the Arab Spring, mainly because after the exciting stuff is over, the media move on and we don't get the same kind of coverage, so don't get a lot of good information. But generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that the period that follows a revolution is always fraught with danger. You know, the question becomes, what will the people do with their newfound freedom? Who will lead? Will there be a leadership vacuum? And, and might the next leader who kind of gets sucked in be worse than the one that was just deposed? These aren't just questions for 
post-2011 Egyptians. This is the question that we come to really in Exodus chapter 14 and following. We've rejoiced recently to see the Lord lead his people out of Egypt with a strong arm, with a strong right hand. And um, in this glorious revolution, God's people march out um, literally with a high hand. That's the expression as it's uh, literally rendered from verse 8, where it says they went out confidently, even defiantly. We love to, to see that, but the question is, what will the people do with their newfound freedom? And what of this new leader, this Yahweh, this God who makes his presence known by pillar, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, will this Lord prove to be a better, stronger, more benevolent leader than the one that they've just been released from, the one who's just been overthrown? These are the kind of questions that are answered in these next few chapters. And I think it would behoove us to really seek out the answers to those questions because they're the same questions that face us today, it seems to me. If you've been recently saved, for example, or if you've been saved really for any length of time, the issue is going to be, how are you going to use your freedom? And... The question is always going to be, how will your new master lead you? This, this question is especially pertinent in trials and when you're facing opposition, when you're going through the proverbial valley of the shadow of death. These sorts of questions loom large and they demand answers. So I think uh, that's a good place to start. Let's just dive right in. And let's look at this passage first by looking at the danger. The danger. We're going to look at the first 13 verses to consider the danger. When we left off last time, the people had fled Egypt, and the Lord was leading them, you remember, by way of this pillar that um, is, really stands for his manifest presence among them. Uh, it was a pillar of cloud. By day, and the same, the same pillar, I believe, uh, was the pillar of fire by night. And we saw that the Lord's leadership was a loving leadership. In that even though they were taking the long way around to get to the destination, they were taking the best way. The Lord was leading them away from and around the, the certainty of what would be with the Philistines uh, a lot of conflict. And the Lord did that purposely because he knew that, that his people, his precious people, were just unprepared for such a thing. And he didn't want to discourage them. It was going to be a morale boost for his people to be led the longer way around this particular danger. But, and we said this a couple of weeks ago, that did not mean that the route that they were going to take, the route that the Lord did choose to take, was going to be problem-free. Okay, this is not the Hakuna Matata Highway. This, it turns out that this route was also fraught with all kinds of danger. And so we'll jump into the action by watching this pillar of cloud go in a sort of circle. The Lord tells Moses to command the people to turn back 
and encamp at a very specific place. The, the narrator gives, gives us four different landmarks, and unfortunately, every one of these is, is presently unknown. Um, doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but you know, place names change over time, and um, there's no scholarly consensus of where um, any of these places are and how they relate to modern day places. But anyway, the narrator is very clear about these places. They were to go back to P. Haharoth. Uh, I think Merrick pronounced it better than I did. But essentially this place means, if you literally translate it, the place where the reeds grow. So apparently, we're just kind of piecing this together, this is a particularly marshy area and this was between Migdol, that's a, that's a word that means fortress, and it was probably named because it was a place where there was an outpost of uh, military uh, fortress. And then it's also between Migdol and the sea, uh, the Red Sea. Literally, this is uh, translated the Reed Sea, the Sea of Reeds, in front of Baal Zephon, or Lord of the North. Vale of the North. Perhaps this is an ancient um, temple site uh, where there would be worship to this ancient idol. This is a strange place indeed for the people of the one true and living God to be encamped facing. And that's, that's to say nothing of how foolish this would be to, to be here militarily speaking in terms of your strategy. And the narrator has led us to think in those terms, hasn't he? He's, he's described the people going forth as a, as a host, an army, in an orderly fashion. And so we're trained to think about all of this in terms of military strategy. But what these people have done under the direction of God is to box themselves in. With a sea behind them, and a marshland on one side, and a desert on the other, and Egypt now in front of them. On the face of it, it seems like the Lord has no idea how to lead. And, and haven't we come to that conclusion before? Haven't, have you ever judged the Lord by feeble sense and scanned his work in vain? Have you ever called his, his wisdom and his goodness into question based on the mere appearance of things? And we'll talk about, more about that in a minute under our second heading. But the point here is, I want to reassure you right away, that the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. If you watch, just to give you an illustration here, if you watch a chess master at work, let's take Jariah for example, if you watch Jariah early in the game, you might be tempted to think that he's crazy, uh, that he's clueless, because you know he keeps giving up his pieces. But if you keep watching, you'll, you'll discover that Jariah knows exactly what he's doing, and he's sacrificing those pieces on purpose. He, in fact, he's, uh, for most of his opponents, he's just toying with them. He's luring them into a checkmate situation. 
And in the same way, if we take a, a closer look at what the Lord is doing, we'll see that it's actually masterful. E even the idea of having his people circle back, that's, that's good strategy. Uh, doubling back, it, it, that's a time-honored technique uh, designed to throw off your tracker. It's designed to give the Egyptians the, the impression that the Israelites are lost, that they're just kind of wandering around in circles, just wandering aimlessly in the wilderness on the, on the edge here. And perhaps, maybe the impression is to give the Egyptians that the people are so at a loss that they've actually deposed their Lord and they've turned to the Baal of the North for guidance. No, the, the Lord knows exactly what he's doing. And Pharaoh is already falling, falling into the trap. He's about to pursue Israel with a full showing of his military might. And the question is, why? Why, why would Pharaoh do this? Didn't Pharaoh and the Egyptians actually send the, the Israelites off? Even stronger than that, the text says that they basically expelled them out of the land. They, they couldn't leave fast enough. And especially after that tenth and most terrible plague, they were all too ready to get rid of these troublemakers. Yes, they did. They, they asked Israel to go. So we have to kind of get caught up here on what has happened in the days since that fateful night. And there's, there's essentially two explanations for what's going on here. Why Pharaoh would pursue the Israelites after he had let them go. There's going to be two explanations. And the first explanation is a very human one. Simply put, Pharaoh changed his mind. And uh, in the text here, you'll, you perhaps will recognize the language of repentance, which is a, a turning uh, of, of your mind first and then a turning of your, your action. Uh, there's repentance on the part of Pharaoh, but it's, it's a really backward sort of repentance. Don't look to Pharaoh for a model here. You know, the, the, the prodigal son teaches us that repentance requires a, a sort of coming to your senses. That, that moment where you just like smack yourself on the forehead and say something like, what was I thinking? That's what repentance requires. But in real repentance, what you're coming to your sense about, your senses about is your sin. In this backward sort of repentance, Pharaoh is smacking himself on the head in terms, about, in terms of his obedience. He's like, what was I thinking when I said that these people could go free and, and go serve their Lord? For 400 years, we had free labor. Look at all that we got accomplished and all that was built, and it was all on the backs of this, this free workforce. And now our workforce has been depleted by a couple of many, million. Our economy has crashed. We've let all of these able-bodied people just walk out of here. What, indeed, were we thinking? Pharaoh, who's like the, the bizarro prodigal son, 
having come to his senses, now starts running. And he's going to remedy the situation, and he's going to remedy it as fast as he can. So he enlists uh, a crack squad of his top men, officers, is the, the term that the text used. And, and he does this together with all of his, his very best military equipment. This is the, the latest in technology. 600 chariots and horses and, and drivers, horsemen. In other words, you could, you could put it this way, as many have. He's deploying all of the king's horses and all of the king's men. And he's desperately trying to put Humpty back together again. Humpty being his economy and his kingdom and all of it on the back of, his, of the, these enslaved people. And so with all of that military might, it's not surprising in the least to see in verse 9 what the Israelites saw, which was a, a pillar of cloud standing in front of them still, and behind them a pillar of dust from 600 speeding chariots. This was now a very real and present danger. But there's a second explanation for why Pharaoh is now pursuing the people that he had very recently expelled out of his land. And this one is a very divine explanation. Look at verse 4 or 8. You, you could take your pick. Uh, verse 4 is the foretelling of this. Verse 8 is the fulfillment. And here's the explanation. Pharaoh pursues the people because God hardened his heart. And if you've been tracking with us, we've, we've looked at this mystery long enough and enough times that hopefully, even though you might not understand it, we might not completely understand how all of this works, we do believe that these two explanations are not contradictory. They are complementary. They, they fit together somehow in the, in the wise working of God. Pharaoh, so what I mean is, that Pharaoh is doing exactly what he wants to do. He wants, he's changed his mind. He wants these people back. He wants that free slave labor again. And at the same time, at the very same time, as Proverbs 21.1 declares, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God is gracious to reveal the divine causality behind these events so that we would be encouraged by his power and so that we would be encouraged by knowing something of his purpose. As for his power, isn't it encouraging to know that the danger that we face from the enemy is completely under God's sovereign control? There's, there's nothing that we would ever face. There's no enemy, there's no opposition that would ever come against us that takes God by surprise. Quite the contrary, he is have, it's under his complete control. And I don't want to go too far here, but I think that this passage more than just suggests that, that this particular danger is by design. It's by design. And so, it seems to me, is the danger that you and I face. 
how much more prepared to face it would we be if we finally realize that God is in complete control over every aspect of it? Well, if it's by design, then to what end? What is its purpose? What is God's purpose? And thankfully, the Lord lets us in on that as well. Look at verse 4. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Folks, you got to understand that this danger and every other danger is designed to bring God maximal glory. It's so that he will be honored among his people and so that he would be acknowledged even among his enemies as the conquering king. So again, I ask you, how would it change the way that you face all of the dangers in your Christian life if you were to know just ahead of time and in the midst of them that they were by design and for the express purpose of displaying the glory of God as he delivers you by the defeat of all his enemies? What if you were to begin to view your difficult circumstances not, not, as a, not as something terrible and something to get away from as quickly as possible or be changed, but what if you were to view your circumstances as the stage on which God will display his power and glory? Well, we certainly need this kind of encouragement when you consider just how prone to d- discouragement we are. And let's think more about this under our second point. So this is point number two, the discouragement. The discouragement. What was Israel's response when they lifted up their eyes and saw that cloud of dust? Look at verse 10. It says they feared greatly. Now, lots of people would want to tell you that that is a perfectly natural reaction to have in that situation or basically any situation in in which there's a very near and present danger. In fact, the prevailing worldview that we live in is a naturalistic one. It's an evolutionary way of thinking. And, And they tell you, this worldview tells us that fear is actually a life saving technique in that it it prompts you either to engage in in fight or flight. Well, neither of those is an option for the Israelites right now. They're, They're no match for a fleet of chariots, and there's nowhere to run. They they're basically painted into a corner, as we've seen. So the naturalistic and the evolutionary worldview tells us that that fear is a proper instinct, we also need to recognize that that's an atheistic worldview. And fear is a particularly godless response to circumstances. I want to just make sure that you understand that. Fear is a particularly godless response to circumstances. In, In that moment, in the moment that the people are fearing greatly, The pillar of dust is looming larger in their minds and in their view 
than the pillar of cloud and fire. And the same is true with us. But at this point, you might be doubting my assessment and thinking that I'm, I'm being maybe a bit too harsh and suggesting that the, the people are guilty of what, what we might call practical atheism here. And maybe you'll point to the end of verse 10 and say, see, they, they cried out to the Lord, which is what they ought to have done. In fact, that same word, that same kind of construction is, we read it all the way back in the early chapters of Exodus, where we, and we saw it there in the context of the people are under this tremendous weight of oppression. And under that oppression, they cry out to the Lord, and we read that the Lord, Lord heard their groaning. And so, and we said back then, crying out, that's, that's commendable, right? Well, yes, but it depends on what kind of crying out you're doing. There, there is a sort of crying out that comes from utter desperation and has the, has the note of absolute dependence. That, that's the crying out that was done earlier. And that kind of crying out is commendable when it's directed to the Lord. But there's another kind of crying out and it's, it's a lot more whining than groaning. It's, a, it's more complaining than it is groaning and pleading. And as you can see this, I hope, as the cry takes shape here in verse 11, it's very clear that the Israelites are doing that sinful kind of crying out. Look at what they say to Moses. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? You need to understand that that is biting, bitter sarcasm. Because if there was anything in Egypt, there were graves. The Egyptians, uh, for a long time, and perhaps still today, are obsessed with the idea of burying their dead and preparing bodies for the afterlife. Of course there's graves in Egypt, but the, the people are making this incredibly obnoxious sort of comment to, to Moses. What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we tell you back there and back then to just leave us alone? I don't remember reading that part. But anyway, they say, we, leave us, we said leave us alone so that we could continue serving the Egyptians. They're saying, by the way, we much prefer being enslaved than dying out here in the wilderness. I want to ask you, have you ever done that kind of crying out? It's, it's disgusting. It's insane. It's cruel. It's forgetful at best. It's totally dishonest at worst. It's incredibly short-sighted. And, as I said, it's essentially godless. Well, if you've ever cried out like that in your fear, in the face of danger, then you'll want to pay close attention here to how Moses responds to the people in verses 13 and 14. And um, don't make a mistake here. 
And sometimes uh, our English translations soften things a little bit too much. Don't make the mistake of thinking that this is mild, because this is actually a very strong rebuke. But essentially, uh, Moses gives the people a list of commands as he rebukes them. And let's, let's call these uh, five duties in the face of danger. Five duties in the face of danger. So there's going to be five S's. And this is going to be a little sermon within a sermon. First, we've got to stop fearing. Stop fearing. This is a command not to do the thing that you're tempted to do. The thing that you might excuse as being the natural thing to do. But just from the, the, the form of the command, this comes to us as a command, it helps us to understand that fear, to fear, is actually to sin. Fear not is not just a, a helpful suggestion. Okay, it's not just practical wisdom. It's not a cope. It's, it's a command to stop doing something that is utterly faithless and godless. Stop fearing. The second command, I think, is like the flip side of, of the first, and that is stand firm. Stand firm. We need to, in these moments, strengthen our feeble hands and steady our shaking knees. We, we need to regain some of that defiance and some of that confidence, that high-handedness that we had when we were first let out. Certainly not confident in ourselves, don't get that wrong impression, but confident in the Lord. And we can only stand firm when we are standing on solid ground. Perhaps Ephesians 6 comes to your mind. When we're faced with the, the schemes of the devil, when we're faced um, all around uh, by the danger that comes from the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness that comes from the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What are we called to do there? We're called to stand, to withstand. And having done all this, finally at the end of the day, to stand. Our calling is to stand firm, confident in the Lord. And next, that, that leads us, I think, to the third thing. The people are called to see to see. In particular, they're called to see the salvation of the Lord. Open up your eyes to see the salvation that the Lord himself will work for you. And it's very important, I think, to understand the role of the actors here. Moses makes very clear that it is God who works and that it is God alone who works for our salvation and for our safety. Look at verse 14. He says, the Lord will fight for you. Our job is to simply witness it, to watch it. And this is going to take, this is going to take the eyes of faith, as Glenn read earlier um, to us from the Hall of Faith in the book of Hebrews. We, we learn that it's by faith that the people had to move forward 
And faith requires, again, the author of the Hebrews is helpful on this point, seeing things that you can't physically touch right now. But we look at them and we apprehend them with the eyes of faith, with the same kind of confidence as if it was right in front of us. They're called to, to see. And same with us, brothers and sisters, in our danger, let's open up our eyes to see the salvation of the Lord. Just watch to see how he and he alone will work. Next, be silent. And here, I think, is a prime example of where the translation is far too mild. This is not just kind of a calm sort of thing. Moses is rebuking us sharply. I think it's more like, shut up. And I know I know, kids, that's generally not a nice thing to say. But it is the appropriate thing to say when in our fear we've been talking a fool. When we've been saying unbelieving and blasphemous things. We're told here to open up our eyes but to shut our mouths. Don't be crying out like you've been crying out. Stop with your complaining and your arguing and your whining and your blasphemy. God himself says this to Moses in verse 15. And I think here he's rebuking Moses as the representative of the people. When he says, why do you cry out to me? And by cry out, I think the Lord is referring to the sinful kind of crying out that they were doing in, in verses 10 to 12. And the Lord is essentially saying to Moses and to the people, enough with that nonsense. Stop with the sarcasm. Stop with the sacrilege. Be quiet. Shut up. And here's the fifth thing. Step forward. Step forward. Second half of verse 15 says, tell the people of Israel to go forward. We're called to walk forwards in obedience. Brothers and sisters, those are our five duties in danger. Stop fearing. Stand firm. See God's salvation. Shut up. Step forward. And now, maybe you're wondering the same thing as what the Israelites were wondering at this moment, which is, what is the way forward? What is the way forward? It looks like I'm boxed in. I've been painted into a corner here. I, I don't know the way forward. I'm stuck. Where do I go? There's wilderness to my left. There's a swamp to my right. If I, if I walk north, I'll be walking right into chariots and swords. I'll be walking right back into slavery. And obviously, I can't go south. There, there's a sea there, for goodness sake. Brothers and sisters, lift up your eyes and see the salvation of the Lord. Point number three, the deliverance. Look at verse 16. Moses, lift up your staff. And stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. We thought we were boxed in. 
it turns out that God can make a way when it seem, where there seems to be no way. That's how Don Moen put it. And uh, more recently, Ellie Holcomb puts it this way. Where he leads us to go, there's a Red Sea road. When we can't see the way, he will part the waves. But what about Pharaoh? What about his chariots? What about his army? Won't they just follow the same path? Won't they just overtake us? And the answer there is, well, yes and no. The, the Lord says in verse 17, yes, they'll follow you because I've hardened their hearts so that they're stupid and they are going to go in after you. It's an incredibly unwise move for any kind of military to make. If they, if they had any kind of eyes to sense the danger that they would be putting themselves into, they would never take this path. They'll follow you, but they won't overtake you. Just, just watch as I get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, his, his hosts, his horsemen. Just watch. And trust me, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and so will you. I love what happens next. Look at verse 19. This is so beautiful to me. The angel of the Lord, which has, you know, appears in the narrative from time to time, it, it's, a, it's so close of a representation of the presence of God himself. And then and you add that to, this is all made visible by the, the pillar, which is at the same time, well, not at the same time, but by day it's a pillar of cloud and by night it's a pillar of fire. We understand from all of these descriptors what, that what's happening now is the presence of God is moving from before the people to behind the people. And we titled our sermon last week, The God Who Goes Before. And we took great comfort from that fact. But we could just as well call this sermon the God who goes behind. Because the Lord not only just lovingly leads us, but he protects us. He, he hems us in behind and before. He puts himself in between his beloved and their danger. And so we rejoice, don't we, at the rhetorical questions of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of, of God, the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, shall famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You, we're, we're asking the rhetorical question. You think danger can wedge itself between us and our God? Of course not. We, we have a, a God who wedges himself between us and our danger. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, or anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when this pillar of 
protection, this pillar of the presence of God comes between the Egyptians and his people, it makes a distinction like it has so many other times before. And here's how I understand the the potentially confusing language of verse 20. That pillar was, as it faced the Egyptians, a pillar of cloud by dark. Because all of this happened at night. But that same pillar was for Israel on the other side. Okay, so let me, this is Egypt on this side, Israel here. Here's the pillar in the middle. To the Egyptians, this is a pillar of cloud by night. To to Israel, this is a pillar of fire which lights up the night. It lights up the night so that the Israelites could cross on this Red Sea road all night long. And that's how long it would take two million people and livestock to, to cross. On the other hand, the dark was completely separated from the light. So the Egyptians, for a long time, didn't have any kind of clue what was going on. However, when when dawn began to break, at some point in the third watch of the night, the Egyptians could finally now see that the the waters of the Red Sea are, are walled up on either side. And they could also see that the Israelites were probably already almost completely across to the other side. And so they pursued and went after them, all of these king's horses and king's men. And it wasn't until they were fully committed, until they were well down that Red Sea Road, that the Egyptians came to their senses. They had, they had another one of those V8 moments. And I suppose what happened is that the Lord finally opened their eyes to the danger that they had put themselves into. Any military man worth his salt knows that you don't put yourself anywhere near a tottering wall of bricks. You know, Captain Bob Wallace and White Christmas learned this the hard way. But how much more ridiculous to put yourself under a wall of water, one that has been clearly constructed supernaturally and and stay away from all of these liberal explanations of how this is all natural phenomenon by by winds and particular currents and all that nonsense this is no doubt supernatural supernaturally created these walls and the egyptian army is quickly coming to that conclusion they realize this is supernatural what, what this means is that the Lord is fighting for this people. And if so, then we don't stand a chance. If the Lord is for them, we can't possibly be against them. And once again, the, the word of the Lord proves true as Egypt comes to know that he is the Lord. So in their panic to retreat now that they've come to their senses, the wheels come off. And I mean that metaphorically and literally because these chariots, these marvels of modern military might, and and we'll see, I hope next week, we'll come back and just recognize how, how much through this narrative 
the, the military might is kind of made much of. If you go back through and just kind of circle or notice at least the, the repetition of chariots and hosts and horses and horsemen, it's like it's stacking up. But anyway, what happens to all of this wonderful modern military might? It gets bogged down in the mud. The axles snap. The horses rear up. And the next thing you know, there's a pileup on the Red Sea Road. And then see Moses on the other side of the sea, lifting up his staff once more. And now see that wall of water on both sides, rush back with way more force than you would ever see at the Middle Falls in, in Letchworth. And, and watch the, those walls of water, that current just completely burying all of the chariots and the horsemen, all of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed this people into the sea. Not one of them remained. And once again, the word of the Lord proves true. The Egyptians that they had seen that day, they would never see again, just as Moses had said. Except, of course, for when they saw their dead corpses washed up on shore. And do you see that, that, that repeated word see or saw in, in that verse? Ultimately, we're made to understand that what the people saw that day was the salvation of the Lord that he had gloriously worked for them. Very quickly, just notice what kind of effect this had on the people. Look at verse 31. First, they feared. Uh-oh. Isn't that bad? No, it was bad in verse 10, but their sinful fear in verse 10 had given way to a proper fear. It's wrong to fear danger, but it's good and necessary that we fear the Savior. Seeing the, the mighty power that the Lord worked on their behalf instilled in this people a, a holy reverence and awe for him. Who is this Lord who's so mighty, so powerful, and yet who loves us so? Despite our sin, despite our unbelief. What, a, what an amazing God. I, I tremble at the thought of such a God. And furthermore, notice that it fueled their faith. It says that they believed in the Lord. They put their trust in his word. They clung more tightly to his promises. And then the verse goes on to say that the people believed in Moses. And we're, we're not very comfortable with that construction, are we? believed in Moses, especially when it's so close and in such symmetry with believed in the Lord. Believed in the Lord, believed in Moses. It, it almost sounds blasphemous for those two parties to, to be on par. But as we'll see and already have seen, I think, Moses is God's man. He's the Lord's servant. The, the Lord is using him in a very particular way in a priestly intercession kind of way, in a very powerful way. And we're going to keep seeing, I think, just how closely the people's attitudes towards Moses is related to their attitude 
towards God. And the same thing is true in our case as well. There's, not, there's a very short distance between uh, the Lord and his leaders, or the Lord and his people. And a lot of times, your negative treatment and attitude towards the people of God, or the leaders that God has placed in your life, is going to be a red light on your dash about what your actual attitude towards the Lord himself is. Another response, seeing so great a salvation, is that the people worship. The people worship. And Lord willing, we'll take that up next week in chapter 15 as we examine salvation's songs. But in the meantime, friends, I hope that you're encouraged. If you are the the Lord's, if you belong to him, if if he is yours and you are his, then understand that he has delivered you and and he's going to keep delivering you. He's going to keep on saving you. There are dangers on every side, dangers without, dangers within. You need to know that the Lord will fight for you. You just only need to be silent. And this is the consistent testimony of saints that have been through the ringer and have lived to tell about it and not just tell about it but rejoice in it here's david for example in psalm 32 verse 7 he says to the lord you are my hiding place you preserve me from trouble you surround me with shouts of deliverance here he is again in psalm 34 he said this is his testimony he says this poor man cried and the lord heard him and delivered him out of all his trouble. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Here's Paul speaking in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 of the affliction that he and his fellow apostles experienced in Asia. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired even of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was by design. It was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Amen. That... that, Is that your testimony today? The Lord has delivered me from so many dangers, trials, temptations, fears. We've already come from them. And by grace, he's going to lead us home. He's going to keep on saving us until he brings us all the way safely home. This is our hope. And may our lives be the theater and may the glory all be his. Amen? Amen.